good morning. Love you too, Paul. I love you too. Well, hello, Abundant Life Church. My name is Aaron Walton. I am one of the pastors here on staff, and I get the incredible honor of not only having the opportunity to speak with you today, but also to close out the message series that we've been walking through over these last several weeks called The Way of Jesus. And this has been an opportunity for us as a church just to take a look at the stories of Jesus, to look at the way that he lived, the way that he treated other people, and then ask the question, how can we live like Jesus lived? So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to John chapter 8. This is where we're going to be spending our time today. But before we dive too much into that story, I want to ask you guys kind of a weird question. What are the unshakable and irrefutable truths of your life? Take a second and just think, what are some of the convictions that you have in this life that you have defined as your truth? And that no matter what anybody else says, you will never be persuaded from this truth that you claim for yourself. Let me give you a couple for examples. Who here agrees with me? Who here believes with me that there is only one way to cook Bacon. Anybody else out there? There's only one, like, God-ordained way to cook bacon, and it's to have that bacon be both chewy and soft. Anybody else out there? Raise your hand, okay? Raise your hand, okay? Let me show you a couple pictures. The first picture is a picture of uh, every Tuesday morning, I get together with some guys for breakfast, and one of the guys has his bacon a very particular way. And the best that I can describe this bacon is that it's charred, (laughs) scorched, and scalded. Look at that bacon. Isn't that just, it just breaks your heart, doesn't it? You're like, the life of that bacon has been completely torn away. But as many of you know the truth, there's only one way to cook bacon, and it's this way, okay? Nice and soft and chewy. Come on, people. I mean, isn't that just beautiful? And the bacon's awesome, too, okay? Um... (laughs) And let me, just, uh, let me just clarify a little side note. My wife has been trying to put, uh, push this propaganda in our household called turkey bacon, okay? <laughs> and that's basically an abomination in my opinion, okay? Second irrefutable, unshakable truth. Baseball is the most boring sport to watch on television ever. Anybody else out there? Come on. Oh, my word. I have spent too many hours watching baseball and pitch after pitch, foul ball, pitch after pitch. Nothing happens for like 20 minutes and then somebody pops out and that's the end of the inning. Oh my gosh. The longest game recorded in baseball history. Here's the picture of it. Triple A international game against the Pawtucket Red Sox and the Rochester Red Wings. It lasted eight hours and 25 minutes. The game started on April 18th, did not end until April 19th, okay, with the Pawtucket team finally winning 3-2 to two in the 33rd inning. Now, that is just a form of torture. Don't you guys agree? <laughs> Can you imagine sitting and watching a game like that, trying your best to enjoy zero after zero for inning after inning? And another side note, soccer, just as boring as baseball, okay? <laughs> Chest is boring. I watched a soccer game a while ago. You know what I saw? I saw the players kick the ball to the middle, and then they kicked it to the side. Check it out. They kicked it to the middle again. 
And then it was amazing. They kicked it behind them. I was like, whoa, what are they going to do next? Then they kicked it to the middle, okay? <laughs> and it was lightning excitement, so amazing. And the game ended zero to zero, okay? <laughs> Last and certainly not least, an unshakable, irrefutable truth of this life that I believe you all can agree with me, that cats truly are the spawn of Satan, okay? <laughs> Little update, uh, I, I, talked a couple, I talked a couple months ago about my cat, Sergeant Tibbs, uh, you know, this cat who does not like me, who walks around this house like it owns the house, uh, treats my wife as it's her wife, okay? And now this cat has started throwing up in my house. He must have heard my sermon from a couple months ago because he's just walking around just throwing up this white foamy stuff all over the house. And so now we're having to go to the vet, to, to pet stores, trying to find the perfect little diet for this... <laughs> For this prima donna cat who can't just take a little bit of kibble, okay? It's just ridiculous. Now, here's, and I want to just state for the record, I treat that cat very nicely, okay? There's some propaganda going around in this church that I treat that cat poorly, and I don't, okay? Thompson family, you tell your girls I treat that cat nice. Now, here's the reality. These are more or less just passionate opinions of mine, right? Like, these aren't real truth. But we live in a world that associates and claims opinion right. as truth. Right. And we live in a world that also says you can have your own truth. Like, I can, if I believe in something, if I have enough feelings about something, if the majority is telling me something, then I can claim it as my truth, but, but it's not your truth. And you can't tell me what truth is because I have my own. But I think hopefully many of us realize that there is only one truth. And it's the truth that comes from the God of the universe. This is how I define truth. Truth are the unshakable and irrefutable realities of this life that find their origin in the character and the heart of God. And this is why we have spent the last five weeks looking at the way of Jesus. Because when we look at the way of Jesus, when we look at his life, when we look at the way that he treats other people, we understand truth. Jesus said himself, I am the way the truth, and the life. In order to understand what true life is, what the best version of life can be, we have to understand the way of Jesus. And in understanding the way of Jesus, we have to look at the truth that he embodied. So we're gonna look at John chapter eight. One more story in this message series that I think hopefully will not only be an encouragement, but also a challenge as we try to wrap our mind around what the way of Jesus looks like. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter eight, we're gonna look at the first six verses right here. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read this story, I have the same reaction. And I, hopefully we all have the same reaction when we read the stories that it really should make us absolutely sick to our stomachs, right? I mean, can you imagine if this happened today? 
Imagine during worship, right? We're all standing up, we're all worshiping, having a wonderful time here at Abundant Life Church. And out of nowhere, I run out into the crowd and I grab one of you and I drag you on stage and I throw you in front of everybody. We stop everything and I publicly proclaim to everybody the worst sin you've ever committed. And not only that, I then say to the crowd, okay, what should the judgment be upon this person for this horrible thing that they've done? Like this is what just happened in this story. This woman was dragged in front of her entire community and then the worst part about her life was just exposed. And now everybody is standing there waiting to see what's gonna happen. Now, before we go too far into the story, what I want you to do is I want you just to take a second and think about this woman. And don't just think about her as just a person that you read in this Bible story, but think of her as an actual living, breathing person. And maybe actually think about her as someone that you know, maybe a family member, maybe a, maybe a friend, someone that you care about. And imagine what's going not only through her heart, what's going through her mind in that moment as she has just been grabbed by the religious elite, by the religious leaders of her day, the people that were to draw her closer to the presence of God have just taken her and now thrown her in front of this crowd, publicly proclaimed the worst thing she's done. And now she's sitting there waiting, what's gonna happen to me? Imagine standing there as a part of that crowd, seeing this person that you care for and that you love and maybe feeling absolutely helpless to do anything. And what's the worst part of the story, right? And, and, and we all know this, right? Because we've, we've probably read this once or twice. The worst part of the story is what? As far as I understand, it takes two people to commit adultery. And yet in this story, we only see one person put on trial. The other man is nowhere to be found. So basically what we can say about this whole situation is it's totally messed up. From the get-go, this is a messed up Situation: The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, again, the religious elite, the elite, religious authority of Jesus' day, they weren't looking for truth. They weren't trying to actually seek his wisdom. As the scripture says, they were trying to trap him. They were trying to put him in an unwinnable situation so that no matter what Jesus did, they could use it against him to break his ministry, to break the influence that he was having upon the people. Here's the trap, just to break it down for you. If Jesus affirmed the execution of this woman, if he said, fine, yes, you're right, let us stone this woman, then he would have been violating Roman law. Understand, during the time of Jesus, right, the, the Romans were the ones really in charge, right? They were the established authority, and the Jewish community was just allowed to live under their rule. But as a part of that, the Jewish community could not perform capital punishment for the crimes that they deemed fit. And so they would have to then give that off to the Roman authority. That's why we see in the crucifixion story, it's the Romans that are putting Jesus to death. So had Jesus said, it's fine, stone this woman, he would have violated Roman law. They could have used that against him. Plus, they could have tarnished his reputation for someone who cared for sinners. So either way, they would have won. The other side, had Jesus said, oh, she's fine, no big deal, let her go. It's, it's not that, you know, like, let's just, let's just forget about it. Then he would have been violating what? Hebrew scripture, right? What has based their entire religion saying, no, this is the violation and this is what needs to happen. So not only would they have had him against in that regard, but they also would have then allowed him to say, hey, 
Jesus endorses adultery. I mean, check it out. This is his reputation. This wonderful, holy art thou guy, he really just doesn't care at all about sin. You see, the the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they knew Jesus' reputation and they knew his character. They knew that he was somebody that cared and had compassion for sinners and they were trying to use everything they knew about Jesus against him. Again, to break his, his ministry and to take away his influence. Herein lies one of the biggest truths that I see in the scripture. One of two, here's the first one. The enemy will use any means necessary to prevent people from encountering Jesus. The enemy is really, really good at what he does. The scripture describes him as being crafty, which is just another way of saying really strategic in the way that he attacks, in the way that he tries to tempt us, in the way that he tries to discourage us. It says that the the enemy is like a prowling lion ready to devour, that the enemy is a thief ready to steal, kill, and destroy. Like that's the reality of this enemy. And as we all know, we don't talk about this a lot, there's a spiritual battle happening every single day. That it's, the fight is not necessarily between you and I, it's against what the enemy is doing, the powers and the principalities of the evil one. And because the enemy is so good, he is gonna use any mean necessary. He's gonna look for any opening to attack, to discourage, to prevent us from encountering God. And then herein lies the second truth that I think is just as challenging. Too many people have sadly missed encountering Jesus because the church got in the way. Let me explain this. I'm not here to bash church. I've been a part of church my entire life, and I can never imagine a day I'll never be a part of a church community. But I know for a fact, and I'm gonna admit for myself, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say that I know that this has happened with me, that because of the way that sometimes I've chosen to live, some of the things I've thought of, some of the convictions that I have, some of the, the arrogant, stereotypical, judgmental thoughts and feelings that come into my heart, I know that the enemy has used that to prevent people from seeing Jesus in my life. I know that he's used that to prevent me from having conversations or from connecting or building a relationship with somebody who lives a different lifestyle than I have or thinks a different way because I was either too focused on myself or I said something so arrogantly hurtful and demeaning that that person was completely turned away to God. I mean, I think if we all take a second and really look at our lives, we wonder how many times have we allowed people to see Jesus Or how many times have we gotten in the way, again, like these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, who, again, were God's anointed. These were the ones that said, God, I want you to draw people closer to me. And these were the ones that took this woman and threw her in front of this crowd and make this public public display, this absolutely sickening moment. So how does Jesus respond? What is his response to this unwinnable situation, to this sickening moment, he starts to write in the dust. (laughs) What's going on here? The scripture says literally in the response that Jesus has, he just stoops down and starts to write in the dust. Now, a lot of people have speculated, what is he doing in this moment? Like, What's going on here? Some biblical scholars say, well, Jesus was actually writing the sins 
of the accusers, right? So like that's what he was doing as he was writing the desk for all of those Pharisees and teachers of law. He was actually writing out each and every one of their worst sin to kind of like, hey, take that. You guys are doing this, but hey, take that. Other biblical scholars say that he was writing scripture to kind of challenge them or to kind of like correct their thinking. There's one biblical scholar that I, that I read says that he, Jesus was just stalling. He didn't know what to do. He was just going, uh, just give me a second, guys. I don't know what to do. Uh, I'll just keep drawing until I think, oh, yeah, okay, now I, like, I don't know. But the one that I love the best was one that I read said, this was Jesus's basically uh, nonverbal protest to this situation. He was basically saying, I'm refusing to debate this issue based off of what you guys have set as the standards. Like, this is a messed up situation. That the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they're just trying to trap him. And so Jesus' masterful kind of response is to go, okay, and kind of let there just kind of be a little bit of tension drawing in that moment. Maybe he was having a moment that I don't know, this is not what the scripture says, this is just what I'm thinking. Maybe in that moment, his heart was just breaking. Breaking for this woman who had just been publicly humiliated. Breaking for the crowd to that, that's watching this take place, to watching what the church of that day was doing. And maybe his heart was breaking for these religious leaders and how they were handling this situation. So I think Jesus was just basically saying, I'm not engaging in this. And I'm just gonna let this moment kind of just sit right now because this is, this is not how I operate. This is not how I live. This is not how I treat people. And so maybe he just did that just to allow the tension just to get to a certain place. But we see that Jesus eventually does respond, but not in a way that anybody expected. John 8, 7 through 11 says this. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I absolutely love the way that Jesus handled this situation. Again, a masterful response. Not engaging in this debate. Not engaging in this unwinnable situation. Not doing it based off of their terms. But instead, completely flipping it on its head. And he says, okay, fine. If you guys want to do this, that's totally fine. But here are the rules. Whoever is sinless, which is just another way of saying blameless, purest of intentions, that you've done nothing wrong, that is the prerequisite for the execution. So go right ahead. And that just stops everybody in their tracks. And they have no response for this moment. So can I just be honest with you guys for a second? Just a quick little pause. I feel like this isn't a good moment for, to do this because I think I've said this maybe once or twice when I preach, but just in case I haven't, I just want you all to know something. I am a sinner. I make mistakes. I am not perfect. And despite being a pastor on staff here at this church, I'm telling you right now, I try my best, but I am not perfect. And if you don't believe me, just find my wife after church, okay? And she'll tell you <laughs> that in fact, 
I am not perfect. I mean, I, I love my wife. I absolutely love and adore my wife, but it's not easy. It's not easy being married to me, okay? I am passive aggressive, been that way ever since I was a kid. I am selfish at times, sadly, too selfish. I have continually uh, been on a journey with God where I, had, I need to claim purity every single day over my life because the enemy continually is trying to tempt me. I can get really defensive in conversations that I have no reason to get defensive. Husbands, I don't know if you ever do this, and this just might be my emotion playing a part in this, but like my wife will tell me something that she's feeling that's really just about her feelings, but I'll take it like, what do you mean? You know, like I'm like taking it in a bad way. And she's like, that's not what I was saying. I was talking to you about my feelings. I'm like, I know, but now I'm sad, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> so can we all just agree for a second? Can we all just admit this, this truth, that we are all sinners saved by grace? Just as a, as a show of hands, can anybody else raise your hand and agree with me that you are a sinner saved by grace? Take a look around and just see. Like, we've got our hands up, folks. Nobody in this room is righteous, not even one. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. We are all sinners saved by grace. There's a T-shirt that I saw once that has always stuck with me, um, and this is the T-shirt. This is what it looks like. It says, I'm the wretch to whom the song refers. So if you don't know, this is a reference to a song, you know, Amazing Grace, right? Let's sing it real quick. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That's us, okay? The song is referring to us when we sing that, that we are the wretch in which the song refers. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. That we have a God that loves us, that sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to forgive us for our sins. But that doesn't mean we're perfect. That doesn't mean we've achieved it yet. We are still trying our mess to navigate and work through this. All of us have pasts. All of us have struggles. All of us are susceptible to what the enemy tries to do every single day, which is preventing us from experiencing the love of Jesus. And so Jesus in this moment kind of levels the playing field, right? He just kind of says, listen, there's nobody here that can cast judgment. And in that moment, we see one of the most beautiful encounters of the divine with humanity. We see one of the most beautiful moments of Jesus with someone that he loved, and we see a transformational moment. Let's look at it real quick. What does Jesus do in this moment? And if you want to know what the way of Jesus looks like, if you've been asking for five weeks, what is the way of Jesus? This is one of the most beautiful expressions of the way of Jesus. Jesus begins to speak to this woman. He looks at her in the eye. He has a conversation with her, which is completely and totally unheard of. Scandalous for his day. For a teacher and a rabbi to be speaking to a woman, let alone a teacher and a rabbi to be speaking to a woman who's been publicly uh, accused of sin, that's unheard of, and Jesus doesn't care. He looks directly into her eyes and begins to speak words of love and encouragement. I love the beautiful reminder that we believe in a God that finds us where we are. Amen? That we have a God who looks past all of our garbage, all of our sin, all of those mistakes, and finds us exactly where we are in the worst moment of our life. That's where Jesus shows up, and he does not condemn her. 
He does not give her a long lecture of why did you do this and what were you thinking and do you not understand that this is the way you should be living and what? He does not condemn her despite the truth of the sin in her life, but he also doesn't let her off the hook. He doesn't just gloss over that and say everything's fine. What does he say? Go and sin no more. See, in a situation that she was probably expecting and everybody else is expecting there to be condemnation and punishment, Jesus offers forgiveness and healing. Timothy Keller says it this way, and I love this quote. God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us where we are. That's the kind of God that I believe in. That's the kind of God that I love to serve. That's the kind of God that I experience through Jesus Christ. It's a love that's so beautiful that it finds us no matter where we are, but that love is so strong, it invites us into a transformational life with him. And herein lies the great challenge that I offer you today. And it's the challenge of grace and truth. Grace and truth. How do we follow the way of Jesus? How do we hold grace and truth when they seem so opposite? Right? Grace is all about forgiveness and everything's fine and love and happiness and acceptance. And truth is about holiness and obedience and you gotta follow the right way and you gotta do the right thing. How do these two things work together? Because we tend to go to the extreme. We tend to think one way or the other. Like we gotta show nothing but truth. We just gotta speak truth. Or no, it's gotta be all about grace. We gotta show grace. And then the, the, the fear is, or the confusion is, if I show somebody too much grace, am I condoning their sin? Am I saying it's okay what they're doing, the lifestyle, the choices they're making? But if I show too much truth, am I a judgmental hypocrite? How do I balance this? And therein lies the great challenge. And let me say this to you. The church needs to practice the posture of holding truth and grace in beautiful tension. Now, this is really hard. And I'm, and I'm not trying to explain this like simplistically, even though to a certain degree, this, I'm, I'm giving you a simplistic example. But think about it this way. It's not just about grace. It's not just about truth. It's about holding both of those together and allowing them to be a little bit of tension, allowing them to kind of work together at the same moment. And really, they're not opposite. They really work in relationship with each other. And that's what we are called to show and reflect as the church. Preston Sprinkle says it this way. Hopefully this might give a little more clarity to what I'm trying to say. Jesus hung out with prostitutes but he didn't endorse prostitution. Jesus hung out with tax collectors, but he didn't affirm extortion. Jesus defended a woman caught in adultery, but he wasn't pro-adultery. Acceptance doesn't have to mean affirmation. Biblical love accepts people as they are and then loves them into the people God wants them to be. My biggest challenge for the church and for myself is that we would show biblical love which is a love that accepts people as they are, right? Because that's the kind of God that we believe in. He finds us where we are. But that love is so strong and it's so big and it cares about the whole person that it actually then encourages, compels, allows a transformation to take place for there can be a change in that life. 
That is what biblical love is. And so hear me when I say this. Biblical love seeks a person's holiness, not just their acceptance. Now here's the thing. This is the same love that we experienced with God. This is the same type of love that God has shown us. Romans 2 verse 4 says this. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? That is what the gospel is right there. Not a God that stormed in, grabbed us all, threw us on the stage, and publicly ridiculed us and said, how dare you? But a God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to show us this incredible kindness. Why? So that we can be changed and transformed into the image of Christ because of that kindness, because of his love. But again, it's a biblical love, one that seeks our holiness, one that honors and respects the truth of God's intention for humanity. Hear me when I say this. Jesus had an incredibly high standard for holiness, for obedience. If you don't believe me, go read the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter five, Matthew chapter six, you will be like, whoa, (laughs) these are really, really challenging ideas that Jesus is throwing our way. Really, really intense. But understand that holiness and obedience is only possible when someone encounters Jesus Christ. Remember, the enemy is gonna do all that he can. He is gonna be constantly at work to preventing people from experiencing Jesus. That's his biggest goal. To, to cause suffering, to cause pain, for people to get to the point where they don't have hope. But most importantly, he wants this world never to experience Jesus. And the sad thing is, he will sometimes use us in order for that to happen. He will use the church to prevent people from experiencing the life and the love and the grace and the truth that comes with Jesus Christ. And so what we have to do is take that grace, take that truth, hold it, hold it in tension. Hold it as best we can so that the enemy has no foothold, no stronghold, no presence as we connect with people that are struggling with faith, struggling with the church, trying their best to navigate through all the ups and downs. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here and lead us in one more song. And as we do, I've got two opportunities that I would like to give the church right now. The first one is just for us to listen to this worship song. Like, I want us just to take a second and just hear and listen maybe to the words. Sometimes we have the end of our worship service where we all need to stand up and raise our hands and, you know, respond, That's, which is all great. But maybe today you just need to reflect on the words of this song. And so the song is called The Heart of God. And it's a wonderful, beautiful song that I think is kind of a beautiful expression of God's desire for us and for anybody that does not know who he is yet. So I'd encourage you just, if you want, to sit, look at the words on the screen, maybe close your eyes and just listen to the words being said. But don't feel like you need to rush or or do anything or get to the next thing on your list. Just let these words be what they need to be. And then I'd encourage you to ask, do I believe this? When When you hear this song, when you sing it, Ask the question, do I truly believe? Is this the truth that I see represented in the heart of God, the character of God, the heart of Jesus, the character of Jesus? And the second thing I want you to do is I want you to all, everybody right now, think of one person. 
Think of one person in your life. One person that you want to see encounter Jesus Christ. And let this be a person that you know personally. Someone that you have a relationship with. That there's some trust there. That there's an authentic relationship. But everybody think of one person. Put their image, put their, their name Look at their, see their face right now and put them in your head. And I just want you to maybe spend this time praying for that person, that they would encounter Jesus. That maybe God could use you as a part of that. Maybe God will use somebody else, but that they would not go one more day without Jesus in their life. So think about that person. Think about the relationship you have with them. Maybe think about the journey that they've been on the choices they've made, the hard moments that they've come in. Do you see that person right now? Everybody close your eyes. Just close your eyes and don't worry about anything else. Just think of that person. And just think about how much God loves them. Think of how just, how much his love and his grace and his mercy just want to be poured out on that person right now. And ask the question, God, what can you do with my life? How can I help point this poor person to you? Lord, prevent the enemy from doing anything. Prevent the enemy from, from keeping this person in your presence. Lord, help me have the right words to say. Help change my mind or my attitude. But Lord, I just want this person to encounter you. We're going to give you about 20 seconds or so just to be in silence. And think of that person in your life. And then the band's gonna start to play and then let this time be whatever it needs to be. And then at the end, I'm gonna come up and I'm just gonna lead us in a time of prayer. But keep that person in your mind, this person that you love, this person that you care for, and pray that they encounter Jesus Christ today. You remind me I'm a child 
regardless of the things I've done Oh, my hope is found in perfect
Father, Lord, we come before you right now as a church, a church made up of sinners, people that make mistakes, not holy art and righteous thou, Lord, just people trying our best. And because of your love and because of the grace that you showed us on the cross, Lord, we have been saved. And Lord, we thank you every day for that truth. We thank you every day that you are a God that found us where we are, that looked past our sin and the journey that we were on, the darkness that surrounded us, looked past the attack of the enemy, and Lord, you claimed us as yours. And you said you are my sons and my daughters. And so, Lord, we thank you for that gift. We thank you for that truth. And we thank you that every day we look for ways to become more and more like your son, Jesus. That we truly would become obedient. That we truly would allow our lives to reflect the qualities of your character and your heart. That the fruits of your Holy Spirit would be so beautifully evident in our life. And that we would experience everything that you have for us. That abundant life that your scripture talks about. But right now, Lord, we lift up the people in our life that don't know you. They're still searching. And every single one of us, Lord hopefully has been praying for that one person that you placed in our heart. And so, Lord, we ask that they would experience your grace and your truth today. Lord, that they would see it reflected in our lives, that they would have their lives transformed through your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray for the people in our life, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, anybody that doesn't know you, Lord, let them encounter your son, Jesus Christ, today. Let them encounter your son, Jesus Christ, today. And Lord, use the church. Use each and every one of us to beautifully reflect who you are, the way of your son, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, so that maybe they may see your son and may experience your love and your kindness. We thank you, Lord, for this moment. We thank you for this day. We give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. Amen. Can I get another amen?